You're listening to The Jazz Session with Jason Crane. Since 2007, the original jazz interview podcast. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. This is episode 623 for August 2nd, 2023. On this episode, saxophonist Michael Blake. Members of the Jazz Session also get this I Dig of You, the Patreon bonus show, on which I ask the guest from the main show to talk about something non-musical that is bringing them joy. Michael talks about bicycle racing. You can hear the bonus episode by becoming a member for $5 a month at thejazzsession.com slash join. You get other stuff too, like early access to every episode, you get occasional behind-the-scenes info, other bonus material, and on every episode, I thank one Patreon supporter as the sponsor of that episode. This time around, it's Vincent Baker, who is a game designer and who I went to high school with. Thanks, Vincent. Michael Blake's new album is called Dance of the Mystic Bliss. Here's the opening track. Blake, welcome to the Jazz Session. Thanks, Jason. It's great to be here. It's really wonderful to have you. We're here to talk about the new album, which is called Dance of the Mystic Bliss, and which uh, I've been listening to and really, really enjoying. And I wasn't exactly sure when to bring this in, so I think I'm just going to lead with it and uh, as kind of a, a, a setting of the table of maybe the the case in which the album appears, the context. Um, and that is that it's dedicated to your mom. And um, I was hoping you could just tell me something about her and how um, her uh, life and her memory are are kind of animating this music. Well, yeah, my mom, uh, Merle, was uh, uh, a dancer, a professional dancer in her, in her uh, young life. And she didn't really uh, get a lot of uh, education and schooling. She she was so devoted to ballet, which was, of course, you know, such an intense discipline and has such a, had so, such a tradition. And she was brought up by working class parents um, with pretty simple, you know, um, uh, you know, pretty simple values. And the arts were definitely not something that you know might that her parents were. Uh, really super were engaged with, you know, I don't think that they spent a lot of time going to the ballet or operas or, or, uh, you know, concerts. I know they went to movies. So once, but she, you know, she just really uh, got a passion for ballet and, and uh, she had the right, um, uh, you know, mental discipline to really work at it really hard. So from, you know, 
that from when she was a kid right through to her mid twenties, that was that was her whole life. And then uh, she had been doing some freelancing and working on TV shows for the CBC. Uh, I'm not really sure when she had her fall, but I know at one point there was an accident and she tore her ligaments really bad, and she had a she had a really bad fall into the orchestra pit. So she she really took a nasty spill, and um, that really kind of ended her career at that moment, you know. Um, and I guess not too long after that, she met our father and decided to go, you know, the route of the housewife. Eventually, my mom was, you know, my parents divorced and, and uh, my mom, spent, I, I was basically raised by my mom and my brother, my older brother, he lived with my dad in California. We would go back and forth. And I had lived in California when, when they were married for a few years. So we were Canadian Californians and, you know, we had this great, had a great childhood. Um, of course, you know, parents divorcing is always an intense thing for a kid, but I, I don't really remember much about that uh, that that part of their the, the marriage breaking up. I don't really remember them being married. <laughs> but yeah, eventually my you know my mom was uh, she had a tough man. She had really bad arthritis. Um, she eventually in her older life she had uh, breast cancer and had a, a, a full mastectomy. And uh, she just never let any of that stuff get in the way of her passion for her life and, and uh, her love of, of, of um, travel. And um, as I mentioned in my liner notes, she was an avid gardener and a cat lover. And I really wanted to set out when I, you know, it's interesting when I looked at doing this project, it was a real shot in the dark application to the Canada Council. I had a few string uh, gigs with a projects similar to what we ended up recording. I sent those in and applied for the grant with the idea of writing this music for to be actually choreographed. You know, just the recording the audio part of it was, you know, was the primary goal in terms of our budget. But I had hoped that it might lead to commissioning a dance uh, choreographer and even looked into some things doing that and videoing that work. And, you know, making it a multimedia kind of um, presentation. So, and that could happen still, but at this point, uh, yeah, the, the music is uh, really a tribute to her. And I think the positive aspects of, of my mom, of Merle, really come through in, the, in that I didn't want it to be a, a downer record. <laughs> that just would not be her at all. You, you're trying to get a sense of a person, but as I mentioned when I wrote these notes, it's, you know, I, I think whenever someone's going to be listening to this, they're going to have their own personal experience. And they'll be thinking or not thinking about whatever it is that they're imagining while they're listening. Or it could be, I think there's a lot of, um, this music can take you to a lot of places in your imagination, in your head, or wherever your heart uh, might, might pull you. You know, my mom had a great interest in classical music and jazz. So I wanted to sort of find a way to bridge that gap, you know, if that still exists, I'm not sure. But.
before we uh, we get more specifically into the record, I just wanted to ask one more question about your mom, which is that given her own past, how did she feel when you decided to become an artist for your living? She was pretty, that's a great question. You know, she was very tentative about it. And uh, I started on the clarinet and she really saw my, uh, my that I, I took, a, I had a, a, a talent towards the woodwind that I hadn't shown when she paid for violin lessons and piano lessons. So when I asked to play the clarinet, she was like, oh, here we go again, you know, <laughs> another month's salary down the toilet. <laughs> but my mom was petrified with the idea of me not being able to sustain a living. And she thought if I become a cl classical clarinet player, I would do okay. She thought, you know, don't, I don't want you to end up like what happened to me when, when, you know, things go wrong. And I don't know why specifically me not playing classical music would have led to, you know, things not going as well because, yeah, there weren't a lot of superstar clarinet players, you know, you know, in the 19, early 1980s or late seventies it was. So focusing our attention back on the album, I know that a, a residency at the Stone uh, was kind of part of the the genesis of what we are now hearing. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, man, I had wanted to do the Stone for at, for a long time, and uh, actually, when I I spoke to John Zorn when he I remember when he he just got the Stone going, and he was saying, "Yeah, it's not going to be just a place for jazz; it'll be all kinds of things." But you're welcome anytime and and then a couple of years went by and then 10 years went by and then they were at the new school and i, I said john i still haven't done a, a residency and he, and he, he went like well you, you are going to do one now i'm not gonna we're not gonna wait any longer and uh uh it was a it was actually a good time it was good timing because it was right up just a few weeks after my mom passed and you know just to have the distraction of of being able to go and perform and and have my friends around me at that time was was really wonderful because i had every night you know a different group of of people um some of whom i've been really close to for a long time and uh, it was great to have that moral support and um we did the strings project with the great jerry granelli on drums and jerry had, had brought me up to his his workshop in halifax to teach in 2015 and we started playing together and the chemistry was great and i just felt you know i just love jerry and him another great loss um of, of, of the last few years along with so many wonderful um, um wonderful people and musicians but jerry you know he was 80 and you know he was 
he was really healthy when I started working with him, but he started having more and more health issues. When we did the stone, he was, yeah, he was really looking out for me. He knew I was, I was pretty brittle from my mom's passing. And he was, he was really, a, you know, he was a Buddhist and he had a really great paternal nature. But we went, went to play the gig. He went, and he went full on. He just started, he was, he was there to play. And here I had this acoustic violin and cello and, you know, this music that was, had all this pizzicato and very quiet bits and stuff. And not really a lot of, hadn't really written a lot of music that was going to be loud. And we certainly didn't have the, the sound system to do that at, the, at that particular venue. But what really shocked me was when he kept telling Tony Shear to turn up, because Tony Shear can play loud on the bass without an amp. But with it, and he was like, I can't hear the bass. Man. I can't hear the, I was like, man, if you can't hear the bass, I know you can't hear the, the violin and cello. <laughs> And I realized that, you know, Jerry, we had a great concert and it was really fun and it didn't, you know, no one was really phased by the dynamics, but I realized right then, like, man, if I do this with a with percussion and not a drum set, it's going to really have a different, um, a more buoyant and a lot more air around the strings because cymbals, you know, they have, they have a, a way of, of taking up a lot of, um, you know, frequencies and space, and they ring a long time. String, you hit a string, you know, bink, you know, even a bowed string, it's, you know, can be a very precious thing. And a drum, you just bang, you hit it. And so I thought, let's try it with a different fashion setup. You know, well, we actually went to record, I think. I think it was already Jerry, maybe Jerry had passed away or something, but. I had completely moved from that stone band into a, a different group of people. I don't even think Sky Steel was on that gig. I think it was Charlie Burnham and Eric Friedlander. So I had a great, great string section. And then for the record, I decided to, to have Sky play, Sky Steel, and uh, he recommended Chris Hoffman. And they had worked together, and that was great you know they had the camaraderie in terms of bowings and tuning and things they they, they work great together and uh, it was it really helped me along while i was riding you know that's basically how the band evolved you know while we're talking about folks by name will you just take us through the rest of the ensemble besides uh, sky and chris rogero bacato was the first uh percussionist i had and he brought a sit-down hybrid kit that he used with all kinds of cool hand percussion and and uh you know uh combinations of uh brazilian percussion instruments and even little metal um uh kind of uh instruments that would just ring and create sort of ambient sounds and uh there's so there's a full range of sort of metal and wood and bells and and things but also this sort of sensibility of a drummer and that he was using a, a, a pedal on the cajon and he's using his feet as well as his hands but not playing a traditional drum set and um, i had mentioned to him i wanted to bring in mauro lafosco who played on my album drift back in the 90s and we had worked together in the lounge lizards so for the record we added mauro as a guest 
as I mentioned, we had a Sky Steel on violin, and he plays a Brazilian fiddle, folk fiddle called the Rebecca. He uh, recommended Chris Hoffman, who played cello. One of my Canadian buddies, Michael Bates, who I'd been playing with in Brooklyn for years, um, I asked him to play bass. And uh, he's a, a great arco player as well, as a good, great jazz bassist and composer in his own right. So um, that was my idea for a string section. And uh, I had a, uh, this, this idea of a guitar as well. So I saw the guitar is also part of the string section. And there I had it. I had my percussion team and my string team. And that was really how I, I conceived of the, the sound, the guitar being sort of the glue element. The sound world on this album is so fabulous. I mean, it just, it's such a beautiful sounding record. And I'm I'm so interested in your approach to arranging for this collection of instruments, because I mean, sometimes it sounds like there's 20 people. Sometimes it sounds like there's one multifaceted instrument being played uh, all by one brain. It's just, it's just really gorgeous, but it's gorgeous in a lot of different ways. So I'd, I'd love to know how you, uh, how you set about the project of bringing all of these instruments together and how you created the world that we're hearing in this album. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. It really is a, a, a world of its own. I, I, um, I, I had uh, Guillermo Montero on guitar, which is, you know, I'm not going to leave him out because he just he just does this um, incredible um, range of, of of styles. Whether it was West African kind of high life guitar I wanted, or he had played a lot of Thoreau music because he has a band with Mauro called Thoreau in the Dark, and um, they ended up really kind of sticking to the Thoreau's, um sound in terms of the grooves. So rather than it going into a samba, a lot of samba or a bossa nova, um, although to me, I, I actually did set out with those words on the sheets, like this is a samba, this is a bossa sometimes. But um, in the process of, of recording, we had uh, the pandemic, and then we found, I found this week after they lifted the, the, um, the restrictions on gatherings, and we all felt that we could you know, there's nine people all together could spend a week around one another and um, get along <laughs> and not make each other sick when we were, and we succeeded absolutely. I was the only one who was basically maskless since I was playing the horns and running all over the place all the time. So 
Um, yeah, we tested and everyone was fine. And, and uh, you know, I don't even know if we had home tests then. And we just tested that one week and uh, got through it all great. Um, now, what a luxury to be in the studio for a week. And sometimes, you know, we would be sitting around, the musicians would be sitting around for an hour while the percussionist just shedded on something. And we would play along and the bass. So, you know, when you got everyone just playing along all the time to these, these, these rhythms as they're going, of course, they lock in. And then when you hit record, it's just there. If they're, if they're, they're, it's re okay. It's called rehearsing. <laughs> You've just invented practicing. Yeah. <laughs> and reverse before we recorded. It's a, you know, what a, what a, what a novelty. Um, you know, it, 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 these things can also get kind of stale and it, occasionally they would really have, they had this killer groove on this tune, um, Sagra. And I thought, man, this is it. Let's do it. And I remember right at, we recorded like one and then Mara was like, nah, it's not right. It's not right. And then another half an hour later of kind of checking out some, you know, uh, some rare Brazilian floral record, you know, it sounded like it was like a, you know, something I was certainly not familiar with, but I was like, yeah, you know, let's, let's, yeah, use the triangle. Let's try that. Go for that. Add the Pandero here. what combinations work great for what tempos and what energy level was happening with the music. So there's a lot of improvising and um, a lot of arranging. And that's why I also, on the record, it was important to me to give the percussionists arranging credits because I had made these demos and I had written uh, and recorded basic um, percussion parts for them, rhythms mainly, like this is the, the key rhythm to the piece like uh this piece weeds when you hear that all the all those parts were mostly most of those parts i, I did right um but then when those you know, they're doing the floral things and there's multiple some layers of percussion there um yeah they that, that's all of them You can support what I do and help keep the archives of this show freely available for everyone by becoming a member for $5 a month. You'll get a bonus episode with every regular show, plus early access to every show, additional bonus material, and other behind-the-scenes updates. You can become a member today at thejazzsession.com slash join. I write press releases and artist bios and liner notes and Wikipedia pages for musicians and for other folks, too. You can see samples of my work at cranewrites.com. I'd love to write for you, so check out the samples and get in touch. And now back to the episode.
So this next thing may be a stretch. And you said early on in this interview that people bring their own experiences to it. And so I think I'm about to bring my own experience to this question. But you, uh, in addition to having been a fan of your own music for many, many, many years, I also was a fan, a big fan of two things that you were involved in, one of which you've already mentioned, which was John Lurie's Lounge Lizards Band, but also the Herbie Nichols Project. And I think a thing, at least in my brain, uh, that unifies those three things, uh, this record, the Herbie Nichols Project and Lurie's Band, is this this willingness to make uh, challenging improvised music that also is listenable and fun and sometimes sounds danceable or sometimes sounds like pop music or like it just it is unafraid to be whatever it needs to be, I guess is maybe what I'm getting at. And I really get that sense from this record too. Like this is a, for as much as it rewards repeated listening, this album, because there's, there's deep stuff in it to hear. It's also a really fun record to listen to, which not all records are fun to listen to. Some records are, are just intense or, you know, just deep or whatever. Uh, But this record's really, really fun to listen to. And uh, I, I don't know. I just, I wanted to see if anything that I just said resonates or strikes any kind of chord with you about your own process or your own thinking about the music. And if it doesn't, feel free to tell me that too. No, I, I definitely think there's a lot of fun there. And I think when I, you know, when I, I, I'm just going back, I know it's, it's, it's when I've had 15 records, you know, since 1997, and I certainly don't want to talk about all of them. But the first ones I did, I mean, it is, it is always important for me to mention that uh, that, that Teo Macero produced my my debut album, which was Kingdom of Champa, which was a really challenging record to make for a, for a debut album. Ten piece band, two bus, slide guitar, cello, two drummers. You know, I mean, you know, I had Stephen playing, Stephen Brinson playing slide trumpet, Thomas Chapin on flute. I mean, it's an amazing band. But Tio was, and he just, he had, he loved the band. He loved the music. He just thought that my whole thing, my whole, he was very um, supportive of me. And, you know, Tio also produced the very first Lounge Lizards record when they were playing that punk jazz nightclub music that was their thing that they had kind of created. In, or, and they were serious about it. Like John called it fake jazz in an interview, and then he had to talk it back for years. Now people can talk about fake jazz, and it's actually kind of what a brilliant brand, right? Um, but uh, at the time, you're like, oh, we want to be taken seriously, but come on, they were having so much fun, and it was goofy in a good way that they were like just showing that, hey, we can play a monk tune like this. And with Skronk and weird rock, you know, punk rock, you know, uh, um, aesthetics. Um, at the same time, you know, you had, they had some guys in that band who were really great jazz musicians. So, uh, you know, I think it all works sometimes, not all the time. Then the band, that band evolved with horns and more and more musicians from Mark Rebo and Roy Nathanson, and Curtis Folks and great players and Eric Sanko co-writing music with John, of course, John's brother, Evan. And um, I joined the band, the third version of that band after that group. And um, I can't say enough good things about you know, being in a band like that. When you're kind of, I had, you know, I was playing funk gigs and I wasn't even really getting to play a lot of jazz in New York. I was really 
I was playing in merengue bands and, and trying to just make a living, probably playing a lot of blues gigs and things like that. But getting in the jazz scene, I would play jam sessions and house sessions with musicians, but I wasn't getting a lot of gigs. And then occasionally that, that they would roll in and I, I met more people. People like Tony Shearer I met at a gig with, you know, it was like, it was a singer named Karen Goldfader and Tony Shearer was on the gig and, uh, and it was a super band. I think it was Larry Goldings and, and, uh, some killer drummer. But, um, those, those sort of things would come up occasionally, but the lounge lizards were so busy and the touring took off that, uh, you know, it was like, uh, I, before I knew it, I, I was uh, seeing the world and I had my mind blown by, by what John was imagining. And I took that in to the studio where I made King of Champa. I, I really did want to try to make a new kind of music that would live up to repeated listening. And I had been in Vietnam and I, I saw and heard all these things that I wanted to make into music and felt things that I wanted to make into music. And, and uh, for me, that was, that was the, uh, the connection from, with Tio Macero to the Lounge Lizards and to my greatest you know, hero and influence, Miles Davis, which was just, what the fuck is this music that he's making in the 70s, you know? <laughs> why wouldn't people like that, first of all? Because a lot of people were, at the time, were like, I won't mention names. We're saying it was bullshit. And I was just like, man, I wish I could make music like this, but he already did it anyway. How am I going to make anything as cool as, as, as on the corner kind of thing? I just sort of struck out to kind of make the stuff. Um, and uh, uh, it's such a great feeling, this record, to make it and, and to have someone like yourself say that it, it, it's a, uh, you know, it's fun to listen to, but it's a, a gorgeous as well. And, you know, you know, it checks off a lot of boxes that for me as a producer and as an album maker are really important. And it's different. Making a record is a lot different than playing a gig, having a great set. Well, it's hard. It's hard to make a great record that lives up to repeated listening. I think a lot of people have a lot to learn still about how to do that in, 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 in this field of music. But, uh, you know, I just have to do it the way I like. And, you know, people can, I'll, you know, come along on the ride.
that genetic material of uh, T.O. and the lizards and even uh, Stephen Bernstein, who you mentioned, who was just on an episode. Uh, this album was then mastered by Scotty Hard, who also master, uh, uh, produced the most recent Sex Mob record, which is what Stephen and I just talked about. And of course, worked with T.O., um, which is kind of where he learned his craft. And so it feels like all of that stuff is just still swirling around and uh, finding these places to touch down in records like this, which I... I find really magical. I I love that those DNA elements are there in whatever way they're there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and Scott Harding, aka Scotty Hard, had engineered Kingdom of Champa, and um, it was funny because the produce the, the what I signed with Intuition Music, and they said they, they want to put out this record, and they're like, we're going to get a producer. I I, I really didn't know who they were going to get. So when they said it was going to be Tio, I thought they were joking. I was just like, how can they even afford that? And then Tio was like, yeah, man, I'm going to do this record. This, this sounds great. You know, uh, can you get this guy, Scott Harding? I, like, I was like, I went to college with Scott Harding. <laughs> Are you talking about the same Scott Harding? And then I realized, oh, yeah, Scott had done this, I think, some stuff with, for Tio. And Vernon Reed was involved, I think. And, and uh, so now when Scott did the Kingdom of Champa record, like, you know, he had been doing all these hip-hop records, Wu-Tang Clan and Prince Paul and... He had brought me into some of these sessions. And uh, subsequently, right when I got in the lounge, if he needed a horn section, I asked Steven. So Steven would, I brought Steven in to, to do a session for Scott. And then they, they got along in a funny way. And uh, they both have huge personalities. And um, so did John Lurie. And <laughs> I was just thinking about this, not to get off track, because I want to get back to the, the T.O. thing. But to stand in the lounge was between John Larry and Steve, Stephen Bernstein. <laughs> that ain't no joke. It's not, yeah. You, I was pretty, I have to admit, I look very shy and a little shell-shocked. <laughs> <laughs> um, movie star and just Stephen Bernstein. What? You know, I, I, it, 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 there was a lot of personality out there. But... Um, Anyway, Tio was really excited to bring Scott in, and Scott came in and into doing all this, all these hip hop records. But there was Billy Martin, sort of launching the Medeski Martin and Wood sound, and Stephen Bernstein launching the Sex Mob sound. And what it what makes those rec what is that sound? Well, a lot of that is Scotty Hart. I know that record was a catalyst for that that a lot of that for those for that scene, and uh, I'm really proud of that. Um, and you know it's great that uh that scott even despite his his horrific accident and you know the, some of the trauma and that all of us have lived through in the last few years like this music is so invigorating <laughs> and so uh you know so muscular like steve steven's stuff is really you know it's really it's it's top notch like i think um new york style music and uh that's a whole other thing to talk about is the whole new york style or, and the swagger of of music from from this town but uh I, i'm i'm really honored and thrilled to be part of that although i think my music is definitely as somebody said mild-mannered <laughs> compared to uh, 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 to some of some of the things that those guys are doing for sure. Yeah, but yeah I'm not sure. Mild mannered is what I'd go with. I be, because to me that implies 
that implies some sort of like retiring quality or or shy or coyness or something, which I don't find in your music at all. I mean, I find your music to have its heart on its sleeve in a very real way. And actually in a way that none of those other artists that you mentioned do. I think they have like their guts on their sleeve in a very real way. You know, I find there's a different character to your music, but I I certainly don't find your music mild-mannered. I mean, I when I listen to your music, I'm fully engaged in the practice of listening to your music. And I don't think mild-mannered music would would do that. Yeah, yeah, I think I agree. And I I I, I thought that was a, that was a strange term in terms of comparing me to 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 Stephen, but having been and played with Sex Mob on on the stage a number of times, and and know you know knowing what you're getting into when you when you get when you when you play with that band and what what they're up to, it's just such hardcore groove music, you know. And uh, I think that you know I, 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 that's what it's out there, and it's it's one of the best bands in the world doing that. And um, so you know i'm really you know i i admire the hell out of steven and he's a fantastic ranger but we have, we really do have very different styles and my also ben allison and i who are very good friends and worked together for years really different styles and uh i know that you know all my you know these colleagues over the years have always um you know been really um supportive of of my my vision and my effort to create my my uh, a kind of art form and music that is is really honest and true to myself and yeah i do really and i do kind of feel like i do play from the heart more than any from any other type of place it's a it's a big part of my expression and i'm glad that you know that's that comes through you know thanks we're coming to the close but can you tell folks about the label and where to get the record and things like that yeah, we started a little label, my brother and I, in honor of our our, our mom and dad, actually, PM Records, and Paul and Michael are our names, and Patrick and Merle are our parents. The idea was to uh, release my catalog and all the albums I, I did have, uh, I own the masters of, and get those in a nice, beautiful website called Bandcamp slash Michael Blake, and uh, also just you know, uh, PNM Music, PNMRecords.com, P-A-N-D-M Records.com. And uh, that is where all those albums are living now. And uh, Dance of the Mystic Bliss is our first new release. And it's on vinyl, which we, this is a new, my second vinyl, Combobulate on Nouvelle is, was my first vinyl, but this is my first new record on the, on the label. And uh, yeah. They got the vinyl, we got the CDs, working on t-shirts and stickers. It's fun. The album is called Dance of the Mystic Bliss, and uh, I cannot recommend it highly enough. It's it's just absolutely fabulous. Uh, you know, it's one of the albums, uh, when I do so many of these interviews, I can't. I don't go back to everything that's ever been on this show, but this is one of those albums that I just know is going to be in the rotation. My guest is Michael Blake. Michael, it's been such a joy to have you on the show, and uh, I hope you'll come back uh, anytime you want to to talk about whatever you're working on, because I really, I love the way you approach music. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Jason. Anytime.
Thanks to my guest, Michael Blake. Thanks to the members who support the show. And thanks to the Respect Sextet at respectsextet.com for the theme music. Sarah Walter for the logo. You can message me for more info about Sarah. And Chuck Ingersoll for being the voice of the intro. You can hire Chuck at hearchucknow.com. Follow the Jazz Session on Twitter or whatever it's called at Jazz Sesh, J-A-Z-Z-S-E-S-H, and on Instagram and TikTok at The Jazz Session. Do me a favor, would you, and rate or review The Jazz Session wherever you listen. It really helps me move up the rankings and reach new folks. I have another podcast. It's called A Brief Chat. It's an interview show like this one, except it has no particular topic. It's just interesting folks talking about interesting things. And you can find it at abriefchat.com or anywhere you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to keep up to date on my shows, my poetry, and more, you can subscribe to my newsletter. Just go to thejazzsession.com and click on the newsletter link. Don't forget, if you value what you just heard, become a member for $5 a month at thejazzsession.com slash join, and then come back next time for another conversation about jazz on The Jazz Session. Bye. Bye. Bye.